just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body. That would make any less, and that wouldn't, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not the eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, would where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, would where would be the sense of smell? But as, but as it is, God arranges the members in the body, each one of them, each one of them, as He chooses. If all were singular, sing, singular member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts. Of the, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, "I have no need for you," nor again the head to the feet, "I have no need of you." On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we are less honorable, we bestow the great honor and unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division of the body, but that the members may not have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ. And individual members of it. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome work, Kate. Thank you. Well, good morning again. <clears throat> what we've been doing this fall is we have been returning to some of our uh, core principles, some of our just kind of our overarching mission and vision. We're asking the question this fall who do we want to be as a church? And uh, we've been answering that in lots of different ways. And what we're going to look at this morning is, that, is the reality that we want to be a connected church, a church where our lives are actually integrated into each other. And um, the image that the Bible gives us to really capture this is this passage that Kate just wonderfully read for us, this image that the church is the body of Christ. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd image if you think about it, that here's a group of people, here's a community of people, and we are collectively Jesus's body. It's, uh, it can be so familiar to church people, but when you think about it, it's, it's a strange image. And, and yet, I think it's, all, I think it's a brilliant image uh, because it's so loaded with meaning. It's so loaded, there's so many implications you can tease out of this. And so that's really what I want to do this morning with you is look at three big ideas. I want to look at the meaning of that image. What, is that, what does the Bible mean by that? I want to flesh out a couple of implications of that. And then look at the power of it. So just three big ideas. The meaning, implications, and the power of that image of the church being the body of Christ. So let's look at the meaning of uh, the image first. And, and to do that, let's pick up in verse 12. Paul begins by inviting you to just think about what is a, what, you know, an actual human body. Think about a body. And here's what he says in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. 
and so it is with Christ. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty simple idea. He's, he's really just using this image to capture this idea about unity and diversity. You know, that a human body has all these different body parts. You have eyeballs and gallbladders and armpits and taste buds, and they all do different things. They have a different role to play, and yet they all come together and they form this one thing. And Paul is saying just, that's just like the, that's what it means to be the church, the body of Christ. Look at verse 27. Now you, y'all, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Where the body comes together, it has all these different parts, and yet it comes together and forms this one thing. It's a pretty simple image to get across this idea. And you might think, okay, yeah, I get it. It's kind of like, um, like a football team, you could say. Uh, a football team is a quarterback and running backs and defensive ends and all these different positions, but you can't play a team sport by yourself. You need everybody involved, and so all the team comes together and plays their different roles, and it's one team. You might think that's kind of like the church. You got a pastor and you got some greeters and you got a worship band and you got all the you know, Bible study leaders and all these different people come together and they form this one thing. It's, you know, it's a simple idea and that's, that's kind of getting at the point. But here's the thing. The image that the Bible gives us is not that the church is a team, but that the church is a body where the individual members of it relate to each other in such a way that, that are so much more intimately, organically connected to each other. I mean, it's one thing to relate to a quarterback and be united to your quarterback because you're on the same team. It's another thing to relate to your arm. Those things are very different in the sense of how you are connected to them. And so, and so here, here's the basic meaning of this image. When you are united to Jesus by faith, when you connect to Jesus by faith, you are also inescapably connecting to other people. You can't, you can't connect just to Jesus. When you connect to Jesus, you also connect to his body, which means that Christianity is not a private religion. It's not a privatized, just me and Jesus kind of thing. It is always inescapably, unavoidably social and communal and uh, public, which means that as a, as a church, as the community of Jesus, uh, we share our lives with each other. We, uh, we, we, we figure out ways to get to know each other in ways that are vulnerable and personal. We share our burdens with each other. We share our stories with each other. We, we laugh with each other. We cry with each other. We link arms with each other in, in our mission here in Midtown, which, which means you put all that together, that's very different from a social club. It's very different from just listening to a podcast. It's, it's threading your lives together with other people. And, and I think here's why this is so incredibly important, especially for our cultural moment, where we are right now just in life. Uh, there are two things that are on the rise in our culture. There, there is division and there is loneliness. I mean, think about how much division and fighting and fracturing there is right now. We, we are fighting and we're dividing over politics. There's fracturing over race and masks and vaccines. We're fighting about gender. You maybe saw the Dave Chappelle Netflix stuff. Uh, the, the unrest is on the rise on airplanes. I mean, they're just, just the unruly behavior on, on flights are just kind of going through the roof. Gun violence is going through the roof. Everybody is mad about everything. There's outrage culture, cancel culture, boycott culture. Everybody's mad about everything and fighting over it. That's just the moment. Division is on the rise. And loneliness is on the rise. 
maybe you've seen uh, all the statistics that all the cultural analysis or, 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 or analysts are pointing out is that um, how much lo how lonely we feel, even though we are connected more and more through gaming and social media and texting. We're, we are more connected through technology than ever before, and yet we don't feel more connected. We feel lonelier. In fact, the word that sociologists are using to describe our current cultural moment right now is loneliness epidemic. We're experiencing a loneliness epidemic. Um, I, I looked at these statistics uh, recently. This is, this is, these are stats from 2015, so these stats are a little dated. Uh, but, but here's what these stats said. The average 12th grader spends two hours a day texting, two and a half hours a day on the Internet, which also includes gaming, and just under two hours a day on social media which on average, that's six hours a day of you know, seniors in high school doing this, which is part of the reason, you know, again, those are six, uh, six years ago, so the numbers are only gotta be higher now, but that just shows, we, of course we're lonely, we're only relating to screens, we're not relating to embodied people. So here's a current cultural moment, you have division on the rise, you have loneliness on the rise, and here's God's answer for us, it's the body of Christ. It's to be connected and share your life in relationship with a network of other people intimately. And theoretically, division gets healed and um, loneliness gets healed. Mark Sayers, who's, a, who's an author, speaker, he's, he's another one of these cultural guru guys, he once wrote this. He said, in a world where friends are added with a button and the beautiful blank faces of stock photography stare at us, Church and faith offer us true face-to-face -face encounters. Now, let me give you an example of this. Uh, one of my friends uh, used to live in Menlo Park, California. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Menlo Park, California, uh, which is, you know, kind of ran, uh, rich, fancy pants part of California. And, and in the fall, uh, when, his, when his daughters would play soccer, he would go out every Saturday and stand on the sidelines with other Menlo dads. And he said, we all wore the same thing. We all wore CrossFit shirts and Lulu shorts or Lulu joggers and on-cloud shoes and drinking coffee out of Yeti mugs. I mean, you can just see, the, the see it. And they would all sit around and try to talk with each other and connect over college football and just kind of awkward dad small talk. And uh, one Saturday night, a friend of a friend of theirs, somebody that they didn't know, needed a place to crash, and so they, they put up this uh, friend of a friend at their home. This was uh, an older Asian woman who lived in the Dominican Republic and worked for IJM, which is the, the partner spotlight that we're spotlighting this month, International Justice Mission. And sh she would go into the vulnerable parts of a city, vulnerable parts of society where, where people were being mistreated and abused, and she would try to care for them in the name of Jesus. And so here's this person that they don't know, and they stay up late into the night talking with each other and sharing stories and crying with each other and, and praying with each other. And, and so he, here's this woman where they seemingly have nothing in common. They're not from the same place. They're not from the same culture. They're not from the same generation. And within two hours, they had formed a deep friendship, a deep connection. That same morning, he had hung out with people that looked like him, wore the same clothes as him, drove the same car as him, listened to the same music as him, had the same shoes as him, and they had no idea what, how to connect with each other. 
Here is what is so powerful about this image, is that the body of Christ unites people together, even people that you may think you have nothing in common with, people who you, you, who, who you may have nothing in common with except for your faith in Jesus, and yet that connects you in the most intimate and personal of ways. That's the meaning of this image. It actually, faith in Jesus unites you not just to God, but unites you to each other. That's a beautiful, amazing, necessary thing, especially in our current moment. That's the meaning of the image. Here's the second thing. Let's try to tease out uh, a couple of implications of this. If that is true, if that's what the Bible's saying about what the church is, there's a million implications we could draw. Let me just, we'll just do two for the sake of time. Here's implication number one. Implication number one is this. The church needs you. The church needs you. Look at verse 15. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. Here's what Paul is saying. Wouldn't it be ridiculous if your foot started speaking and your foot said, well, I can't, I'm not a hand. I can't grab stuff. I don't have opposable thumbs. I stink. And let's just say that your foot then um, disconnected itself from the rest of the body and, and ran off. That would be horrible to the overall well-being of the body. And Paul's point is, no, y- y'all are different, but, that doesn't, but you're integral. You're absolutely necessary. In fact, look at what he says in verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? His point is you need all the body working together in order for the body to function and do what it's supposed to do, which is the, here's the bottom line. Here's the implication. The church needs you. The church needs you. If you are someone who follows Jesus, if you're someone united to God, you are absolutely necessary and integral and, and inexpendable, if that's even a word. You're not expendable. You are, you are loaded with significance because the church needs you. You have a vital role to play. The church is weaker without you. The, the church is, uh, is more inept without you. Um, I don't know if this has ever happened to you before. Uh, sometimes I'll have this experience where I'll experience a, a, a muscle cramp in the middle of the night. This happened a few months ago where I'm laying in bed, I'm asleep, it's four in the morning, peaceful, chilling, dreaming. And all of a sudden my leg, I get a charley horse where your calf muscle constricts and turns into a softball and it's excruciating and you're asleep and you get ripped out from your dream and I'm trying, you know, I can't scream because the rest of my family is asleep all around me and so you're just silently screaming and writhing in pain and you're massaging your calf muscle and I'm, I'm trying to walk it off at four in the morning in the middle of the night and I was thinking about this, cramps, muscle cramps are weird, it's crazy, it's like a part of your body it's fine. It's chilling. We're sleeping. All good. And then it revolts, and it, and it attacks you for some reason. Now, I could, you could theoretically respond and say, you know, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. We're done, leg. And you could just cut off the leg and, and, you know, cancel your leg, as it were, and say, we're done here. And, you know, if I severed my leg and, you know, to punish it, to put it in its place, um, you could do that. Um, but that's crazy and that's stupid because you, 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 when you do that, you, you hurt yourself. You hurt your overall body. And so even when your body, even when a member of it is 
uh, hurtful, painful, you tend to it. Because by tending to it, you're tending to the overall health of your body. Here's the point. Maybe Paul is having us think about what, what if we have the same commitment to the overall well-being of the body of Christ in the same way that we are committed to our overall well-being of our own bodies. That just when one body part is hard or hurtful, you don't abandon it. You tend to it. In the same way, you tend to the overall health of the body of Jesus, even when it's hurtful, even when it's painful, even when it's challenging, even when it's difficult. I think Paul is having us think that we have to start thinking more than just what are we getting out of this? What are we getting out of being a part of this community? What, What is in it for me? And we have to start thinking, how can I care for and pursue and seek after the overall well-being and benefit of the body of Jesus. So here's the question for you. How would your relationship with the church change if you began to believe, okay, that church's well-being is in some way directly connected to my involvement in it? Because that's what I think Paul is saying. The church needs you. You're important. You have a role to play. That's, that's implication number one. So here's implication number two. If it's true that the church needs you, then it's also true that you need the church. That's implication number two. Let me show you where I get this from. Um, Paul's pretty obvious. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. In other words, you can't just look at another Christian and say, yeah, I don't, I don't really need you in my life. I don't, you, you don't, I don't really need you. And if you can't say that to an individual member of the body, you certainly can't say that to the body as a whole. You can't look at the church and say, I don't need you. Implication meaning you need the church. Now, why? There's a, there's a million reasons we could use to answer that question, why you and I need each other, why we need the church. Well, let me just give you one. Here's why we need the church. In one sense... In one sense, it's very easy to be a Christian by yourself. To wake up in the morning, feeling good, feeling up to it, read the Bible maybe, pray, uh, try to be a nice person, listen to a little podcast, listen to a little worship music, whatever. Um, Go about your life. In one sense, that's pretty easy. It's a lot harder to, if you have kids, deal with kids, bring them to us, take them to a place, deal with the noise and the distraction. It's another thing to be a part of a church and have people get to know you and to where you might actually have to start asking other people for forgiveness. You know, most of us live our lives with a pretty sophisticated PR campaign where we want everybody to know we live this kind of perfectly curated, awesome life. And then when people actually start to get to know you, they begin to look behind the veneer and realize, oh, this person doesn't have it all together. This person isn't all that awesome all the time. They're angry and they're mean and they're afraid and they're burdened by things. And when when other people start to get to know the real you, well, then you start to feel exposed and people start to actually get to know you. You might have to ask other people for forgiveness. That's way harder. It's way harder to be a part of a community where you have to um, get to know people that are hard to be around. It's so much easier to just withdraw and be by yourself than to be around people that may be annoying or awkward or challenging, frustrating. 
But here's the point. What if that is part of the point? What if that is part of the genius of God's design of the body of Christ, that the, that the tensions and the conflict and the exposure of it all is part of what sanctifies you, part of what stretches you, part of what shows you that you need grace? What if that's the whole genius of it? You can't, you can't do that by yourself. You have to be in a relationship with messy, hard-to-love other people to really be exposed of how impatient and selfish you really are. And that's part of the genius of the body of Christ. So you need the church. The church needs you. That's the meaning of the image. There's two implications of a thousand of the image. And here's the last thing. Let's look at the power of the image, and then we'll be done. The power of the image. In other words, how do you get that to ha- how do you get that to happen? How do you get people together who don't really have anything in common, who really are quite different, who might even be opposed to each other, politically, socially, culturally, more whatever? How do you get people like that intimately tied to each other? Well, here's the power of this image. Remember, the image is not just of a generic human body; it's the body of Jesus. It's not just unity, unity and diversity in a generic general sense. It's unity in diversity in Christ. This is what verse 27 is getting at. And here's why this is so important. Because there's, there's another place in the Bible that talks about, uses the same language of the body of Jesus, only it's not referencing uh, the church specifically. Uh, the night in which Jesus was, before he was crucified, before he was betrayed, uh, he's having dinner with his disciples. You might even call it his last dinner with his disciples. And he takes a loaf of bread, and he gives thanks, and he breaks it. And he, and he says, this is my body given for you. Now, what Jesus is doing there is he's comparing himself to, a, to bread. His body is this bread that gets broken and offered freely as a gift. And when you take him in, you are nourished, you are strengthened by him. But, but here's the question. Why did Jesus have to be ripped? Why did he have to be broken? And here's why. Um, if you're anything like me, then we contribute to the fracturing and the division of the world. I know that I do. I, I lose my temper with my wife. I lose my temper with my children. I lose my temper with my friends. I withdraw from people that are hard to be around. I say things that are unkind to people at times. I contribute to the fracturing, into the hurt, into the breakdown of the world. And if you're anything like me, then that means that you do too. And if that's true, that means that you and I then deserve to be ripped. We deserve to be broken, broken apart from our relationship with God, broken apart from each other. And yet... In God's kindness, what he does is he sends his son to come and to be broken in our place. Jesus climbs up on a cross and he receives what we deserved. He gets ripped so that you and I don't have to. And as he is broken as a complete gift, he offers that sacrifice to you and me to come and to take and to receive it. And just like coming to bread, there's only one real requirement. All you need is to be hungry. It doesn't matter whether or not you were raised in the church. It doesn't matter whether or not you're a good person. It doesn't matter what language you speak. All of these things that the rest of the world gets divided over, fractured over, all of that gets demoted. And the only thing that matters is your need for a Savior and the Savior for your need. In other words, the thing that unites us is grace. 
that Jesus' body, which was whole, becomes broken so that our body, which is broken, might become whole. It's a grace that unites us. That's the power. As we are united to Jesus, we get further and further united to each other with deeper and deeper resources of kindness, grace, and mercy for each other. Now, last thing, and I'm done. Final thought. In um, December of 1914, this is five months after World War I had begun, uh, there's this amazing story where um, there's this battle in Belgium where you have British soldiers on one side and German soldiers on another. And so, you know, the British soldiers are in their trench over here. And then across the field, you have German soldiers in their trench over there. And in between was this place called No Man's Land you know, where they're, you know, firing bullets and throwing grenades at each other. And it's cold, it's wet, it's freezing, it's December. And uh, here's how one British soldier wrote about it later. He said, quote, Here I was in this horrible clay cavity, miles and miles from home, cold, wet through, and covered with mud. There didn't seem the slightest chance of leaving except in an ambulance. One night, 10 o'clock at night, the British soldiers are huddled together. They're cold, they're wet, they're freezing, they're bundled together, and all of a sudden they hear something. And they pay attention, and they're listening, and what they hear, they're hearing noises from the German camp, and what they're hearing, are sing they're hearing singing, and they're listening, and the, the Germans are singing Christmas carols, and then it hits them, oh, it, it's Christmas Eve, and so the next morning, Christmas morning, at the light of dawn, um, some of the German soldiers get up, get up out of their trench and start walking into no man's land, calling out, Merry Christmas, to the British soldiers in English. The British soldiers think, oh, this is a trap, this is a trick, they're trying to lure us out so they can kill us. But all the German soldiers are unarmed, and so they eventually reluctantly crawl out of their trench and start walking towards these German soldiers, and they kind of awkwardly talk and shake hands and start wishing each other Merry Christmas, and they start eventually trading each other's, you know, presents and gifts with each other. They traded cigarettes. They handed each other bottles of wine. Uh, some of the records say they, they exchanged plum puddings, which kind of sounds gross when you think about it. <laughs> they're changing plum puddings, and, and, and they start singing songs together. Some of the accounts say that they played a soccer game together in the field, and they, they hung up and lit up Christmas trees. It's, this ama it's a true story. Amazing true story that in the, in the lingering smell of gunpowder and, and fire and dead bodies, they throw a Christmas party. It's a spontaneous truce in the middle of, of a war, in the middle of a battle. Here's what one, um, another British soldier named John Ferguson wrote later as he described it. He says, here we were laughing and chatting to men whom only a few hours before we were trying to kill. Now here's the question, what in the world compelled those people to get out of their trenches, put down their guns, and to walk towards their enemies? It was the celebration of Jesus. The celebration that here is this one who has come to bear in his body the sins of the world and to, recon to reconcile people to God and people to each other. And that had enough power. It was more powerful than the hatred. It was more powerful than the guns. It was more powerful than the bombs. And the reality is, is that 
Jesus has that same power today. He still has enough power to unite people together that on the surface might look like enemies, people that are on different ends of the political spectrum, people that totally disagree over what to do with COVID, people have very different competing views over gender, sexuality, people who have very different competing views over education. People on the surface might look like they are polar opposites, enemies. And yet he alone has the power to unite us to each other because he is a God of grace. So who do we want to be as a church? We want to be a church that is connected to each other intimately, deeply connected to each other because we are deeply and intimately connected to a God of grace. That's who we want to be. We want to invite you to be a part of it with us. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you connect us to each other, even um, despite ourselves. And Father, for people out here, people in here that are like me, that have a tendency to want to throw up walls that you have previously torn down, I I pray that you would teach us kindness, that you would teach us repentance, that you would give us humility and give us a deeper faith in this, this God of grace who bears in himself, who bears in his very body the sin, our sins. Give us that same selfless orientation with our friends and with our enemies. Give us that same selfless orientation with even the people in this room. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.